0: Welcome to this podcast on Conflict, Causes and Legacies. Produced here at Queen's University Belfast, this is part of a series created in the University's Faculty of Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences, focusing on the ideas and research of academic experts here at Queen's in relation to conflict. I'm Richard English, Professor of Politics at Queen's University Belfast, and I'm delighted to say that today I'm joined by Professor Tony Gallagher and Dr. Andrew Thompson. Tony Gallagher is professor of education at Queen's University Belfast. His main research interest lies in the role of education in divided societies. Most of Professor Gallagher's work has focused on Northern Ireland, including his pioneering research on shared education. He has also worked extensively in international contexts, including Israel, Southeast Europe, and Lebanon, and in the cities of Los Angeles and Jerusalem. Professor Gallagher also works extensively for the Council of Europe, largely on issues related to the democratic and civic role of higher education. Andrew Thompson is a lecturer in politics and international studies at Queen's University, Belfast, and a fellow of the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice, also at Queen's. His research interests include pro-government militias and civilian defense forces, the dynamics of violence in civil war, state violence, and counterinsurgency and irregular warfare. His book, Outsourced Empire, How Militias, Mercenaries and Contractors Support US Statecraft, was published in 2018. His work has also focused on the contemporary peace process in Colombia in the context of multiple armed groups. Tony Gallagher, I'm going to start. The conversation with you if I may and your, your work on shared education has developed an influential model of school collaboration aimed at promoting cooperation between schools which largely serve different communities. Could you say something please
1: about that research and about its effect? Sure Richard, uh, thanks very much for this opportunity. The um, I suppose the starting point in this work was uh, the opportunity provided by the peace process in Northern Ireland. Uh, there were lots of discussions at the time about uh, how we could try and underpin the peace that could come out of the Good Friday Agreement um, and one of the things we did was to look at all the educational interventions over the 30 years of the troubles to see what had worked, what might have worked better to, uh, and when we did that, um, there was a very strong sense that although there's lots of amazing work done, there was very limited evidence of any systemic change in the education system. So we started thinking about ways in which this might be done differently. One one of the important influences was the shared future debate at the time. The idea of trying to create a more interconnected society um, because um, we knew that separate schools in Northern Ireland and were there for reasons, long reasons of history. Separate schools had created, if you like, institutional boundaries between young people. And the debate had been whether we should keep separate schools or have common schools. We started to think about a different type of possibility, about trying to uh, take these boundaries. And rather than rather than try and get rid of them, make them more porous, uh, encourage bridging processes to connect the schools, connect the young people and the teachers in the schools. So that was where the initial idea came from to try and see a school system as a sort of an interdependent system uh, and try and build positive interdependencies between them. Uh, So part of the thinking was about how we could create these type of collaborative uh, partnerships. Linked to that was work that a colleague of mine, Joanne Hughes, had been doing on contact and the effectiveness of contact uh, between people from different communities. Uh, and so from that work, we were trying to, to figure out a way of making this type of partnership and cooperation more permanent. Uh, we got some some funding from uh, Atlantic Philanthropies and the International Fund for Ireland ran pilot projects, working w- eventually with about 150 schools, trying to find a practical way to create these effective models of partnership. Uh, and after working with schools for about six years, uh, we came up with, uh, if you like, a, a model of, of shared shared education, uh, which has a number of different elements to it. Uh, A really important element to it is empowering teachers, uh, since they know the challenges and the possibilities of the local area best. Uh, A second key element was to encourage locally tailored partnerships and, and arrangements because not all areas are the same and so they need to address different things that are appropriate for their particular context. Along with that, uh, it was important that the partnerships were pursuing multiple goals so they should help the schools achieve their educational goals as well as the social goals that we were largely interested in. It was important that the shared classes which were happening out of this where young people from different schools were coming together to take shared classes, that these happened right across the curriculum, uh, particularly core areas. So, So this new partnership activity was absolutely visible and absolutely central to school life. Um, And we also found that it was important to encourage as many lines of connections as possible between the schools to try and create, if you like, a a dense network. Uh, So that's where the work work took us in terms of trying to develop a model, uh, an effective model through which this type of collaborative work could could happen. Then the issue was about how we could make an impact on policy and, and practice. Uh, and that was something that we had been encouraged to do right from the start uh, by the funders. And so a lot of our time was spent uh, bringing together all stakeholders in education so they knew exactly what was going on. Part of the reason for that was because a perennial problem in Northern Ireland is the notion of the hidden agenda. People assuming that no matter what you, why you say you're doing something, that there's some other ulterior motive. So we wanted to make it a, 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 as clear as possible and as open as possible what this whole work was about. Then we worked very closely with politicians and policymakers, so that they were very clear about the purpose of the work. They were very clear what was happening. They were very clear about the, the positive things that were emerging from it, and also the challenges. And that eventually led to a situation where there's a very strong consensus in the assembly um, uh, about uh, supporting this at a policy level. And we are now moving towards a situation where uh, this shared education model, this model of school partnership, uh, is is becoming a mainstream part of the school system.
0: Thank you very much. And Tony, in your work, relating to what you've just talked about, really, you've addressed the need for balancing different objectives. So the balance between, on the one hand, recognising identity and minority rights, and on the other, the need to promote a sense of the common good, which I think is implicit in what you've been talking about there. In education systems within divided societies, whether Northern Ireland or elsewhere, how is that balance between identity and minority rights on the one hand and common good on the other, how is that balance best pursued?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's been a really interesting issue in education across divided divided societies for many years. In education, sometimes we have a problem of, uh, our policymakers have a problem of thinking there's a silver bullet, an educational structure that will solve all your problems for you. Uh, but in divided societies, you do have that dilemma between uh, allowing separate schools to recognise identity and protecting minority rights, or promoting common schools in order to encourage a sense of social, social cohesion. Um, the analysis we did uh, when we were trying to look at examples of different divided societies and how they're how they're, how they're education systems were organised, highlighted highlighted the hugely important role of context. So, for example, separate schools in apartheid South Africa are all about maintaining political or were all about maintaining political domination. Uh, It wasn't about recognising identity in any meaningful or positive way. On the other hand, if you look at the history of education in places like England or the United States, uh, at times, Common public schools were promoted, but they were actually about assimilating minorities to dominant identity as if everyone should be or or, or should become the the, the same. So a particular structure has to be considered within this particular context. I think in our context in Northern Ireland uh, and some of the other divided societies within which we operate, people shouldn't be afraid of diversity. But at the same time, we should be trying to promote processes that highlight the notion of the common good and that's where the idea of collaboration uh, collaboration and partnership between schools seems to open up a new possibility it's a bit like having your cake and eating it it allows you to do two different things simultaneously uh, uh, and create new patterns of relationship between young people between teachers parents and communities Uh, and it also means it has to be a dynamic thing so at some point in the future the way in which you achieve these balanced goals of recognizing diversity and at the same time promoting the notion of a common good might be better achieved through a different type of structure and it should be allowed to evolve in those sorts of ways. So I think that's one of the most important things that's come out of our work. Context is hugely important and you should never imagine that this is a problem if you like or an issue that you solve once and for all but you'll always be prepared to think of it in those sorts of dynamic terms.
0: Thank you. Uh, Andrew Thompson if I can turn to you now in the conversation i mentioned your book outsourced empire and that's a book that argues that the usa's outsourcing and privatizing of its armed capacity and its alliances is in fact a much more long-standing aspect of u.s imperialism than has sometimes been recognized indeed sometimes been recognized by scholars could you say something andrew about that central argument of your book
2: Absolutely. Thank you, Richard. So um, that book, Outsourced Empire, how militias, mercenaries and contractors support U.S. statecraft is about how and why the U.S. has sponsored various non-state armed actors in counterinsurgency and regime change in numerous countries around the world. It struck me that most other studies on private military companies and U.S. sponsorship of militia type actors in counterinsurgency tended to suffer from what I called uh, a presentist bias. Uh, where these things are presented as new or novel and particularly in the war on terror in Afghanistan uh, and Iraq. So that book traces the evolution of the sponsorship of such actors from 1945 in U.S. foreign policy until today, um, including a look at early uses of private military companies. Um, The central argument of that book is that we can get a better sense of how and why the U.S. has sponsored various non-state armed actors through an appreciation of U.S. "quote unquote" imperialist intervention into much of the global South um, in the post-World War II period, so basically, I I connect the outsourcing of U.S. military capacity to its informal imperial foreign foreign policy, um, where it has attempted to create or preserve uh, sets of political and economic arrangements abroad that are conducive to U.S. interests, um, and that's sort of traced throughout the post-World War II environment,
0: 1945 until the present. And in addition to the military capacity and interventions that the U.S. has engaged in, the U.S. has al- also, as you've observed, been involved in various peace processes and different approach to conflict resolution. You yourself and your scholarly work, Andrew, have worked on the evolution of a a complex and tangled peace process in Colombia. uh, And you're based here at Queen's in Northern Ireland. How far are there resonances between the Colombian peace process and the Northern Irish peace process, which Tony was referring to a moment ago? Or are the differences between those two cases, in your view, more important than similarities between them?
2: So that is a very difficult question. Um, I think there's a number or there's a variety of similarities in both the conflict and the peace processes between Colombia and Northern Ireland. Uh, In both cases, there were multiple armed groups, uh, the various different factions involved in the conflict. Uh, In both conflicts, um, we have an extended period of of violence. Uh, In both contexts, we also have a deeply rooted a conflict conflict that is deeply rooted in colonialism, or the legacies of colonialism. Uh, Both the peace processes in both of those countries have experienced similar challenges. Both had issues with the disarmament process and demobilization. Both had experienced continued violence after the signing of the agreements. Uh, Both experienced the challenge of spoiler activity. And both, of course, have uh, contested legacies or uh, of certain cases, including, for example, surrounding the cooperation between state forces and quote-unquote paramilitary actors. In Northern Ireland, there are many unresolved cases of alleged collusion between the state and loyalist paramilitary factions, whereas in Colombia there was a massive parapolitical scandal. So in other words, there's, there's, there are experiences in, in conflict and in the peace processes between the two countries, I think, were ultimately quite similar. Uh, There are also many differences between the two cases. One of the major differences that I'm interested between these two cases um, is that the Colombian government has approached the peace process or has approached peace vis-a-vis various armed groups in a very different way. In Northern Ireland, essentially all the warring parties or at least representatives of them Uh, and uh, different communities sat at the table all at once. They all came together and hammered out a deal such that the Good Friday Agreement was signed by two different countries, the UK and Ireland, and eight different political uh, groups or political parties. Whereas in Colombia, the the government has adopted what I call a, a piecemeal approach to peace, where the government has led negotiations with one armed group at a time. So in the 1980s, there was a peace process with smaller groups such as the M-19. In the 1990s, the government held failed negotiations with the FARC, uh, the country's largest left-wing rebel group. Then in 2005-2006, the government led a demobilization process with the right-wing paramilitary self-defense forces. Then later on in 2016, the government had successful negotiations with the left-wing guerrilla insurgency, the FARC. Uh, And the two parties signed a landmark deal designed to create peace in the country. Now, of course, uh, more recently, the government has had separate somewhat secretive talks with the ELN, which is the country's smaller left wing guerrilla organization. So during all of this, there are all sorts of different smaller groups um, that have been excluded from negotiations and from the peace processes that followed them. And those groups have continued fighting. And I think that is a really important difference that has produced very significant divergent dynamics uh, where in Colombia they face significant hurdles in bringing armed groups that were excluded from the peace deal between the government and the FARC uh, into or folding them into the current peace process.
0: Thank you very much. And as that set of comments reflect your work has had a comparative dimension and both of you have worked on various settings of conflict and division around the world i want to ask each of you now about the implications and the strengths and the challenges of that kind of comparative way of approaching conflict its legacies its resolution tony in your work to what extent are the comparative aspects of what you've done central to the development of the arguments the Quality and weight of the work
1: and to its effects? Well, it turned out to be much more important than we had ever imagined uh, at the start. Uh, we worked, uh, in education, people often work with a concept called best practice, which assumes that for any given problem, someone somewhere has already found the solution, and what you need to do is to find them and see what they've come up with. Uh, we, right from the start, worked with the concept of next practice, which uh, works on the assumption that different people have. Bits of the answer. And so you need to try and connect as many of those different bits together, if you like, amplify the the aspects which look the most interesting and see whether they work. It's all about creating innovation. So from that point of view, you need to have as much diversity as you can. And that's how we did it in Northern Ireland by bringing teachers on board and tapping into their expertise. People from a number of different divided societies who are working in education, Israel, in Los Angeles, uh, in the Southeast Europe, uh, heard about what we were doing, approached this and asked for us and asked us to come and tell them about the, the work we were doing and the model that we were developing. Uh, and we emphasized to them the importance of trying to, to pay attention to their own context and take the notion of partnership but but frame it in ways that made more sense within their particular context. But when we were doing this, we realised that connecting teachers in Northern Ireland with teachers in Israel or in Lebanon or in uh, Kosovo or North Macedonia or in Los Angeles, itself was a hugely important source of new source of ideas and experiences and expertise. So it, from a practical point of view, uh, connecting all those different, uh, different, uh, very diverse range of experiences and ways of doing things proved to be a hugely important source of, 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 uh, of innovation in, in the programme. Uh, it also helped us whenever we were trying to frame the theoretical context, because in the, the greater the variety of contexts you're, you're trying to work in, the tougher the tests of the model, and so the, the better the understanding that you achieve all but so on all those levels, at a practice level, at a theoretical level, uh, it was re- it turned out to be a really, really important part of the work.
0: Thanks. And Andrew, it, in your work as a scholar analysing violent conflict, what would you say are the main challenges to successful comparative work? And in, in your scholarship, how have you tried to overcome those? Well, I think
2: I'd like to make a distinction between the comparative method in political science and comparative work more broadly here. I do not want to talk necessarily about the challenges of the comparative method in political science, which might include, for example, the problem of too many variables and too few cases or case selection criteria and so on and so forth. I think that will probably bore most of the listeners to death. Instead, I'd like to say a few observations about comparisons more generally and perhaps make a similar type of remark or observation um, as Tony did just there. Um, I think there's a couple of Broad observations about comparison that I'd like to make one is that is amazes me how different concepts or terms are used from one context to another. Uh, One very simple example of that is, of course, the term paramilitary in Northern Ireland just refers to any type of armed group uh, where a non state armed actor, I should say, whereas in Colombia paramilitary refers to a very specific subset of right wing militias. Uh, Another is how difficult the application of concepts can be when applied to uh, an historically informed and very detailed analysis. Uh, as a scholar, I think we often struggle with applying certain concepts that we often use within our disciplines to specific cases. So terms that we often use to denote specific categories of armed actor, for example, become much more complicated in their application to specific cases and sometimes lose their coherency. So, for example, the term pro-government militia is a term that I often use um, to describe non-state armed actors that are in some way connected to the state or connected to organs of the state or at least work in conjunction with them, usually in counterinsurgency um, campaigns. Um, but that term often loses its significance when we apply them to different cases. For example, uh, in Northern Ireland or in Colombia, and we might get confused with other terms that are used more locally um, to describe those types of actors. Yeah? Uh, a recent project that I'm working on at the moment, just to give you a sense of how these types of comparisons uh, might unfold in different contexts. So I'm working on a current project um, on dialogue and reconciliation between ex-combatants in Colombia. Uh, And the idea of essentially, or part of the idea, will be at some point to bring in uh, ex-combatants from Northern Ireland who have gone through that process of dialogue and reconciliation with their former enemies uh, and ask them to provide lessons to their Colombian comrades as to how that process was for them what their experience was in that process of dialogue and reconciliation with former enemies uh, and what they what they have done since the initial sort of contact period uh, and um, an initial dialogue between those two groups and how they can work together to to create lasting peace and I think there's a lot of scope there for comparison between Northern Ireland and Colombia in this respect and valuable lessons that ex-combatants can give us from Northern Ireland and uh, that can be applied to the colombian case. And so coming over some of the overcoming some of those problems was the second part of your question. i think it's just about making sure um that we have an historically informed analysis and attention to subtle details as an important part of that comparison. so we we we're, we're clear that we're comparing similar things across different cases.
0: our two researchers have ranged very widely in this conversation today, it's clear that their work addresses major challenges, challenges that are global, that relate to much of the world, but also as we've been hearing from Andrew and from Tony, challenges where contextual specificity is as important as the family resemblances and the comparative points between them. We've heard our different disciplines have so much to bring, unique insights from different perspectives around the academic world in terms of addressing major challenges. I do hope that everyone listening to this podcast will follow up by going to the Queen's University Belfast website and looking at the work that our researchers who've been speaking today have done and follow up by engaging with that published work and reading it. But for a fascinating discussion on major themes and a really great set of insights, I'd like to conclude this podcast by giving profound thanks to Professor Tony Gallagher and Dr. Andrew Thompson. Thank you very much indeed. Please rate and review and share this podcast.